Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. You're tuning into Service. Johnny Bestricka, Private First Class. Veteran stories of hunger and war. They joined the service. Remember Pearl Harbor. Remember Pearl Harbor. A production from iHeartRadio. We used to just give these people the food from our biscuits. You ate what you could get and be thankful for what you were getting. I'm your host, Jacqueline Raposo. Tracking World War II service stories from men across branches, we've heard intimate descriptions of how military food traveled and how much they loved or hated the stuff. They used to have something like brown hamburger. Used to call it shit on the shingle, SOS. And the guys used to say, you're great, but it was so good. Unfrozen canned dates by the barrel load. Anything not frozen, we were getting it. Good, bad, or indifferent. So the food was really lousy at the beginning. <laughs> Until these guys learned how to cook all the rations that they were getting. Like mutton, that's awful. Old sheep meat full of fat. and Oh, it tastes terrible. I never want to eat mutton again. And I still can't eat it to this day, orange marmalade. Behind our individual veterans and their millions of compatriots were thousands of officials working to improve combat cuisine across the board. In the final episode of this season, we're going to dive deep into the nerdy details of this era's military food innovation overall, but today we spend time with a Navy veteran whose story shows us how much the men working with the food actually cared. Ray Boutwell was a Navy cook stationed in New Jersey toward the latter part of the war. As we've heard before, and we'll hear him repeat, the Navy boasted the best food of all branches. And this was especially true for those docked stateside. Not only were their kitchens not moving from one place to another, but they were first class. And by 1944, when Ray went in, the military had improved upon a few elements that had been rocky at the start. Because before the draft kicked in, the U.S. Armed Forces had to only feed around 400,000 troops. Within a few years, 
that number soared to over 12 million at its peak. It's like asking one friend over for dinner and then having the entire army football team showing up. Massive amounts of food are needed quickly and for a long time. And so that's why we've heard of farming shortages and ration restrictions for civilians, and repeated complaints about certain foodstuffs. That mutton Lawson Ichiro Sakai mentions? Evidently, mutton, meat from a sheep at least two years old, was found on hundreds of menus in the United States in the early part of the 20th century. But the military wasn't a discerning purchaser of the meat needed to feed en masse, and so the canned stuff that came in from Australia that was then cooked stateside or repurposed for sea rations and shipped overseas? Let's just say anecdotes from both military and food historians put Mutton's fall from grace in the same blame camp as spam. Neither regained stateside popularity post-war because GIs had been flooded with the subpar stuff as a regular food for months on end. And that orange marmalade Harold Budlong mentioned? With so many training base camps built in sunny Florida, the citrus industry boomed there, overtaking California, which we've also heard was suffering from the lack of interred Japanese workers. Gallon tins of the stuff were sent to Europe, but that doesn't mean it was good. <laughs> so how did needing to make massive amounts of food shape the service experience of one individual wartime cook? Let's slow down and hear a little about this as we spend some time with Ray Boutwell. My name is Ray Stanley Boutwell. In the Navy, I became a third-class cook. I grew up on a farm in Danville, Vermont. My father's people came here in 1636, settled in Massachusetts. My mother's people came in 1648. They settled in Rhode Island. But the white ones, which was my mother's loyalists, they migrated to Canada during the revolution. She was born Canadian, came down here, met my father. And I was from a family of nine boys, so I had eight siblings, no sisters. Farm life was quite invigorating. It taught responsibilities. One of my jobs was to bring in the livestock every day to be milked. We brought the horses at the same time to be fed. We had a shepherd, so he herded the cows. All I had to do was open the gates and close the gates. That was my main job, and carrying in wood for the cook stove to make sure that my mother had enough wood in the kitchen to last her all day. My mother baked 11 loaves of bread every other day because she had to pack seven lunches. The average when I was going to school, count my father's lunch. So she had to bake 11 loaves every other day to take care of the lunches and what we consumed. We consumed a lot of bread. We ate a lot of potatoes. Meat was expensive in those days. We got bacon, we got salt pork. My dad used to buy bread for my mother so that she didn't have to bake on Sunday. Monday, for school lunch, we had commercial bread. All the rest of the time, it was home-baked bread. <sighs> My mother was a fascinating person. Her mother died when she was only two, and her grandmother took care of her and taught her to cook from the time she could stand up and put an apron on. She cooked on open fire, oil stoves. There wasn't any type of cooking utensil that she wasn't familiar with. 
I was always interested in what she did in the kitchen and what she did in the pantry. Mom. And I was probably the only boy that went in and worked with her, probably got in her way. In the summertime, she made ice cream. She would do cupcakes, she'd do sheet cakes, ice them, cut them up. We'd have a treat that way. She fascinated me because of the way she produced the food and the quality of food she produced. It was a quiet Sunday. We had a quiet dinner. We didn't even turn on the radio. So I saw a friend of mine. He said, did you know that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor? I said, oh, where's Pearl Harbor? I was a freshman in high school, old enough to realize what's going to happen. And it was quite upsetting for my mother and father seven older brothers. They all served but two. One was 4F. He had a bad leg. The other one was studying to be a minister. He became a conscientious objector. But he served his country. He worked in forestry all during the war. So he did his part. Rationing was something else. Sugar was one of the big things. Most of us didn't consume that much sugar. So my dad was able to get enough sugar for my mother to do her baking. There was a lot of things you could not buy. They didn't ration clothing, but we just had to find places that were producing clothing. Wool was taken up pretty much by the government in their heavy coats and in their socks. Appliances, because they stopped manufacturing for the war effort. I enlisted while I was still in high school because if I waited to be drafted, I'd have to take what they gave me, and I wanted to be in the Navy. I heard that the Navy's food was better, <laughs> and I didn't want to live in a trench. I just thought maybe my living quarters would be more comfortable. So I was stationed on a facility station, the Woodbine Naval Air Station to the Pomona Air Base in the southern part of New Jersey. It's about 25 miles from Cape May. We trained pilots. We usually had about five squadrons we were training. I went in late into the war in 1944. I was going to be a toolmaker, but there was no opening. So they stuck me in a kitchen and I worked in the chief petty officer's mess. They paid us $10 extra a month for working in a, I was a server. I took the chief petty officer's order, what he wanted for his dinner, called it in the window to the cook, and then served the food to the officers. And I had time off after a breakfast meal, after the dinner meal. I didn't waste my time going to the pool room. I went into the kitchen and helped the cook and tried to learn something. We had sufficient equipment to handle whatever job we needed to complete. We had reach-in freezers, walk-ins, steam kettles, we had grills, we had ovens that were first class, we had mixing machines, we had dough dividers. Some of the officers preferred our food over the food in the officer's mess at the main station. They ate in our mess because they liked our food better. We were proud of that fact. We took a lot of pride in how we did the food, how we presented the food. Most of the stuff that came in from the general mess would be whatever the government sent in. 
I ate in the general mess at times. They had an officer, he was quite innovative. The food was really exceptional. He made sure that the men had milk at least once a day. I don't know how he did it. Sometimes we had fresh vegetables. Most of the time it was canned, but the chief petty officers and the commissioned officers, they used their own money. They would give money to the cook and he would buy a lot of his stuff local. They had meatballs and spaghetti. They had lobster once a month, fish. They had a lot of chicken. The government had experimented during the 30s with freezing chicken. And we got a lot of chickens that were frozen as far back as 1935. They just killed the chicken and put it in a the freezer. They didn't even clean them. We had to do that. It didn't seem to be freezer burned. They must have did flash freezing. But we used chicken that was frozen 10 years later. A lot of people were leery about eating frozen chicken. I took one frozen chicken to my mother-in-law. I had extra frozen chicken. We didn't want to spoil it. I didn't know it until years later. She would not cook it. She gave it to her daughter. And her daughter said, it was delicious. Meat is always the most expensive aspect of any menu item, right? And this holds true for military foods, too. And so freezing meat was actually a government experiment before the 1930s. Feeding troops for the Spanish-American War in 1898, meat was transported dangling whole carcass in refrigerated cars. For those serving at the start of World War I in 1917, future Spam inventor and Army Lieutenant Jay Hormel worked with the government to set up the first boxed beef processing plant. Their hacked up, lumped together, frozen, and shipped meat bricks took up 60% less space removed of their fat, bones, and cartilage, and weighed 25% less. But you know how it goes when you put anything together in a bag and stick it in your freezer, right? Later, you have to hack and chip away. This made for not pretty meat when it got to military cooks in France. And so, yes, by the 1930s, we had figured out how to separate and flash freeze meat. Freezing cuts of meat with extremely low temperatures to make for smaller ice crystals that, when unthawed, left relatively fresh-seeming meat behind. I couldn't find stats about chicken, but the book Combat Ready Kitchen reports that 29 million cattle were sacrificed for troops between 1941 and 1945 alone. When we return, we'll hear about Ray transitioning from military service cooking to hospitality service cooking. Stay with us. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursion? Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.
The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. You're listening to Service, veteran stories of hunger and war from iHeartRadio. I'm Jacqueline Raposo, and we're with Ray Boutwell at a facility station off of the Pomona Air Base outside of Atlantic City. It's mind-boggling to think of days that shift the weight distribution of the world. December 7, 1941, snatched over 16 million American men from their schools, farms, factories, and families, and plunged them into woolen uniforms and trenches and submarines and gunnery shacks. August 15, 1945, forced the millions of women who'd patriotically flooded the workforce back into their kitchens and closets because 15.7 million men were coming home. And almost everyone remembered what it was like to have little in the jobless Great Depression years they'd barely survived. A Gallup poll released in July of 1944 reported that 50% of Americans expected unemployment would settle between 14% and 34% post-war. The U.S. Labor Department projected 25. People were afraid of Hitler and Hirohito, but of hunger, too. So was President Roosevelt. And so in June of that same year, he signed the GI Bill, promising $500 million for the creation of veterans' facilities, unemployment compensation, job placement aid, and the education rates and stipends we heard our William Walker mention in his episode. What about Ray? Let's head back to the summer of 1945 and continue along. Good evening, everybody. This is Lyle Van with a 6 o'clock report from the NBC Newsroom, presented by Planters Mixed Nuts. In the headlines, the Allies are discussing Japan's offer of surrender, provided they can keep their emperor. No indication from official sources on whether Hirohito must go. Premature celebrations around the world. They cleaned the station up when the Japanese surrendered. When I was sent back to Pomona Air Base, I became a third-class cook. 
as a cook, you had to be a butcher as well. As a cook, you had to know how to butcher, you had to know how to bake. Because 1946, people were being discharged and all the experienced cooks that had service time, they were the ones that got out first. And we were short of qualified cooks. The Navy Granite Free Fishing Kitchen. The routine, I just studied hard and made up my mind I was going to learn to do this stuff right. So I had no problem. We had very good food there. I was taught that the first entree that you serve, you put everything you can into it because that sets the impression of the meal. So I usually started off with the soup. That was the first thing I served the officers was my soup. And then we made a roll to go along with it. We made chicken noodle soup. We made six or eight different kinds of soup. Vegetable soup was one of the popular ones that I really like to make because it's so diverse. All these different vegetables, sometimes we use the chicken stock, sometimes we use beef stock. The beef stock seemed to be the more favorite. Of course, we try to do the best we could in every other part of the food, but the first serving and the dessert. We put all we could into that because the first impression and the last impression is what really puts the meal over. If you got a dessert that they really like, you got a soup that they just want to eat more of. We've had officers, they would order two bowls of soup, take our dessert, and they wouldn't order anything else. We really put a lot into the first course and the last course. I take great pride in what I do. I did not just cook it and put it out. I tasted everything I cooked. I don't let it go out unless this is going to pass. I tasted it, flavored it. I'm not a big person on spices. I'm so used to how my mother made plain, simple food. If you're making a cake, you want it to taste like a cake. If you're making a donut, you want it to taste like a donut. When I got done cooking, I never sat down and ate a meal because if I made biscuits or if I made some, I had eaten so much of the food by just tasting it that I was not hungry. In order to survive, you had to go 110% rather than 100%. That just rubbed off onto me. I was discharged on the 5th of July in 1946. Cooking as a civilian was a short thing for me. I went to cooks and baker school when I got out. When I graduated, placement officer said I qualified as a fry cook, and he sent me to a hotel in Atlantic City for an interview for a job. We discussed different things. Then it came to hours, and he said you come in at 10 o'clock in the morning, you work until noon, and then you have two hours off. You'll come back at two. So I called my wife, and I said, they'll work me 10 more hours. I'll be away from home 14 hours. No way am I taking a job like that. From that day on, I was going to be a baker. Still in the food business. I liked it. And that's how come I became a baker. Ray got married to his wartime sweetheart, Rosanna, as soon as the war ended. And they had one child. 
He worked in bakeries consistently until they took over their own bakery on their 25th anniversary in 1972, making miniature pastries, cookies, and two versions of a beloved local Philadelphia butter cake that I promise to tell you more about another time. He closed the bakery after 18 years to retire, meaning he soon got bored and helped other bakeries out. Rosanna passed a few years ago. Ray was painting portraits but was a little bored and a little depressed. And so he did what any 93-year-old would do. He opened another bakery. Ray's Boozy Cupcakes in Voorhees, New Jersey currently offers Valentine specials like the Runaway Bride with vodka, Kahlua, and raspberry liqueur, and the Love Potion, a coconut cream liqueur cake with amaretto and a ganache filling. His next project? Opening Caroline's Boozy Ice Cream next door as a tribute to his mother, who started it all. I just want people to know that I try to give them the best product that I can produce. I will not let them down. I enjoy all the relationship that I have with a customer. A man came into the store and he says, I saw you on television this morning. His wife came out and he says, we're going to go for a ride today. And she says, where are we going? He says, we're going to New Jersey. She says, that's six hours away. They live in Boston. They came in the store, they took pictures with me. They bought a dozen boozy cupcakes and drove back to Boston. I was really humbled and honored that somebody would do that. I'm proud of the fact that I was able to serve. I hope to live to be 110 and I accomplish what I set out to do. You can find more of Ray's story and links to Ray's boozy cupcakes at servicepodcast.org. In our next episode, we spend time with Sister Melanie Kambik, an army nurse turned nun who shares how her immigrant childhood left her with an aversion to cabbage and her work as one of the peanut butter and jelly brigade. Until then, Service is a production from iHeartRadio, where Gabrielle Collins is our supervising producer and Christopher Hasiotis our executive producer. I produced and engineered this episode with Steve Lubetkin as the on-site engineer with Ray. Thank you for subscribing to and rating service on your favorite platform after you listen. And don't forget that you can send a message to all of the veterans you hear on this show at a form at servicepodcast.org. Most of all, thank you to those serving and those who have served. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, 
or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless.